Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. The history of music is filled with tales of heroes and villains, the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the tragic, the smart and the dumb. Some are forgotten now. Others are just a vague memory or some kind of historical curiosity. Others still have their own cult of nostalgia built around them. Then there were those who will be remembered forever, either because they left behind a legacy of brilliant music or perhaps they came to symbolize something extraordinary. They become our heroes. But every once in a while, we run across a person who becomes iconic for being, well, let's be honest, for being nothing more than a monumental up. This odd brand of celebrity has no redeeming or heroic attributes or characteristics whatsoever. There is nothing about them that we should idolize or admire. Yet because they're so good at being a up, they're so madly, completely, deeply up that we gaze in astonishment. We gaze in awe and with something resembling admiration. This is the story of one such iconic up. Books have been written about him. Movies have been made about his life. His image and his name have probably appeared on more t-shirts than any other 21-year-old musician in the history of the universe. This is the story of one of the most famous, most notorious, and least musically talented punk rockers of all time, John Simon Ritchie. The guy we all know as Sid Vicious. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. On the morning of February 3rd, 1979, the newspapers carried a small item which told of the death of a disgraced punk rocker the day before. It was a junkie's death. Sad, lonely, and so expected. No one, not even his mates, were really all that surprised. It was a tragic end to a short and violent life. But it was also the beginning of a great musical legend. Having fun? Good. A rare live recording of Sid Vicious with the Sex Pistols from late 1977. Sid's playing bass, of course, or at least we're told he's playing bass. Um, You see, Sid was so inept as a musician, often so drunk and high, that there's real doubt whether he ever played a note on stage with the Pistols. We know for sure that for some shows, a roadie was hired to play a lot of Sid's parts off stage and unseen. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross. Now, what is this continuing fascination with Sid? He was a violent drug addict who died of a heroin overdose. He was a convicted felon. He was unemployed, practically broke, and with virtually no future as a musician or anything else. He couldn't sing, he couldn't play his instrument, and was rubbish at writing songs. Oh, yeah, he was also waiting to go on trial for the murder of his girlfriend. And that's not the half of it. Wait till you hear about his family and some of his friends. 
The question we're trying to answer is this. Why, out of all the casualties Rock has seen, is Sid Vicious remembered so vividly and with such, um, well, dare I say it, fondness? You aren't going to believe a lot of what you're going to hear over the next hour, but to the best of anyone's knowledge, it is all true, or at least nearly true. Before we go any further, let's go back to the final Sex Pistols show at the Winter Garden Ballroom in San Francisco on January 14, 1978. Listen carefully how the bass comes in and out and in and out during this song. Sometimes Sid could be bothered to play, sometimes he couldn't be. I guess his backup roadie wasn't available that night. The Sex Pistols, self-destructing, on stage in San Francisco in January 1978. That was the last time Sid Vicious played for them. All right, let's start at the beginning. Simon John Ritchie was born in London on May 10th, 1957. That's the same day as a guy who would later become known as Bono would be born four years later. And yes, I did say Simon John Ritchie. I know a lot of people say John Simon Ritchie, but it's Simon John Ritchie on his birth certificates. How those names got mixed up is a mystery. His dad, John Ritchie, was a soldier. He was a member of the Royal Guard. And his mom, Anne, was a once-married, once-divorced hippie chick, a free spirit who once worked for the Royal Air Force. And that's where she met Sid's dad. However, Sid came along without them ever being married. Anne, who had reverted to being Anne MacDonald, simply gave her boy the father's name. The three of them moved to the Spanish island of Ibiza, or at least that was the plan. Dad sent Mom and Son ahead with the promise of joining them, but um, he never showed up. To make ends meet, she worked as a typist and sold pre-rolled joints to tourists. Eventually, she figured a way to get the British High Commission to have her and Sid deported back to the UK. See, she didn't have enough money to actually make the move. Once she got home, Anne immediately scammed the National Health Service by pretending to be a junkie, so the government would give her some place to live for free. And it worked. And since she figured she might as well play the part, Anne ended up being a heroin addict by the spring of 1962. Sid would have been about five at the time. In late 1964, she met and married a man named Christopher Beverly. This explains why Sid's birth name was Richie and everybody called Mom Anne Beverly. Meanwhile, poor Sid never really got it right. Sometimes he referred to himself as John Ritchie, and sometimes it was John Beverly, and sometimes it was Simon something. Didn't matter, really. Christopher Ritchie died of cancer about six months after the wedding and a few weeks before the paperwork could be filed so he could adopt Sid. About five years after Christopher's death, Mom and son moved to London, where they lived in Hackney, which is in the East End, and there weren't a lot of luxuries. Mom made some extra dosh by rolling joints for the dealers that she knew. She also still liked the occasional hit of heroin, you know, just to take the edge off. Sid was a bit spacey, but he wasn't dumb. He loved reading books by Edgar Allan Poe and watched the American space race with great interest. Before he dropped out of art school, John met another couple of Johns in some of his classes. The first was John Lydon, a kid with a scary stare caused by a dangerous case of childhood meningitis. Another was John Wardle. Now, to keep everything straight, John Wardle became known as Ja Wobble, and that's because when Sid, our very first John, when he was drunk, he couldn't say John Wardle. It came out as Ja Wobble. 
And there was a fourth John. His name was John Gray, and he hung out with the other three. And it was around this time that our John, John Ritchie or Beverly or whatever, became known as Sid Vicious. John Lydon gave him that name. The Sid part came from John Lydon's pet hamster, who bit Sid one day. Legend has it that our John said, Ooh, Sid is really vicious. And so it was. Now, Sid, our guy, really did become vicious later in life. His favorite weapon was a motorcycle chain. Anyway, Sid and the three Johns eventually left home and squatted in an abandoned building in the Hampstead area of London. Through a series of events that have been told many times, John Lydon eventually became Johnny Rotten, the singer of the Sex Pistols. Ja Wobble became a bass player, went on to some Post Pistols projects with Johnny. And John Gray went to, uh, well, live a more traditional life. And Sid? Well, that's our story. At first, his thing was fashion. He was really into clothes, especially the styles inspired by David Bowie through his Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane period. He was also a huge fan of Roxy Music, one of the big art rock bands of the day. Sid would steal Vogue magazines and go through them cover to cover. But he kept getting it all wrong. He'd do things like wearing sandals in the wintertime just so he could show off the weird nail polish on his toes. He dyed his hair red on top so he could look a little bit more like David Bowie. And he had this bad skin, awful acne, which didn't help. But Sid didn't seem to notice. He wanted to be a model. Seriously, he wanted to be a male model. He wasn't much into playing music except when he and the other Johns would go busking for change. Sid really couldn't do anything but play the tambourine, although they did once give him an acoustic guitar, which he could not play. But Sid's fashion victimness is key to the Sex Pistols story because it was he who led everyone into Malcolm McLaren's clothing shop in the King's Road, the place where the Sex Pistols were formed. Once the band got going, Sid became the Sex Pistols' number one fan. He was a member of a group of fans called the Bromley Contingent, a group that also included the future Billy Idol and a woman named Susan Ballion, who would later reinvent herself as Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees. Sid followed the Sex Pistols everywhere, but he also played in a couple of groups of his own, because at the time that was the thing to do. He was the drummer for Susie and the Banshees when they made their debut in September of 1976, and he was also part of a group called Flowers of Romance. It's also possible that he was considered to be the lead singer of another new punk band called The Damned, but for whatever reason, Sid failed to show up for the audition and he didn't get the gig. And Sid continued to be vicious. There was an incident where he threw a glass at a pistol's gig and a woman ended up losing an eye. In another case, he took his motorcycle chain to Nick Kent, a journalist with the NME, because he didn't like his pants. And then there was the time he threatened the host of a BBC TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test. When Glenn Matlock was fired as the Sex Pistols bass player in February of 1977, Malcolm McLaren came up with the idea of hiring one of the group's fans as his replacement. And since Sid was always around, and since he was Johnny Rotten's mate, he was in. The ultimate fan becoming part of the ultimate band. I mean, how punk rock was that? So what if he couldn't play the bass? Legend has it that Sid was self-taught. Here's how he did it. He stayed up one night on speed while listening to a Ramones record. By morning, he could play along. That made him qualified to be the Sex Pistols bassist. Here's Sid's take on the whole thing. Before I joined the group, I used to be a shop assistant in the in the sex shop. You've got Malcolm McLaren. I, I went to see them. I, I, I knew John. I, I, he was a, an old 
enemy. Uh, enemy of mine from <laughs> we college days. We used to squat together. <laughs> and we hated each other. And, I think, and he was in this group and we, we were going, we really hated each other at the time. And like, I thought, oh, this is going to be a real load of crap, this idiot. So I went along to see this group and uh, they, they were just like, uh, really wonderful. I really thought they were great. Mainly what did you me. think of me, Sid? Tell them. I thought he looked like a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, <laughs> and like, I just thought they were the most brilliant group I'd ever seen. You know, I really admired them. They were just like so honest, I just couldn't believe it. Like that Bill Grundy thing, I mean, that wasn't put on at all. He asked for it and he got it, you know what I mean? They'd done it in a very, very cl clever way. They were just themselves. But he could have a complete mincemeat of him because he's a total fool. He's growing up and they're kids, so how can he compete? Sid really got into being a sex pistol. He was there when the Pistols signed their record deal with A&M Records outside of Buckingham Palace on March 10, 1977, not too far from where Sid's biological dad once worked with the Royal Guards. His first gig with the band was on March 21, 1977 at a small club off Leicester Square. One of the first things he did after joining the band was publicly proclaim himself as the inventor of the Pogo, the punk dance that involved little more than jumping up and down in place. Sid was with the Pistols through most of 1977. He wasn't on the Nevermind the Bollocks album. Glenn Matlock was still a member when that was recorded, but Sid did tour through Britain and Scandinavia with the band. Now, I'm sorry about the quality of this, but this is all that really remains of that era. Again, Sid is on stage, but whether he's actually playing the bass parts can't be confirmed. The Sex Pistols, live in Sweden in the fall of 1977. Sid Vicious is the bass player on stage, but like I said, we don't know if he was actually playing the bass. Here's a clip from manager Malcolm McLaren. Sid couldn't play bass. I mean, who cares? We should turn him down in the mix. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we should turn him off, actually. We've got to all the dials on the amp. Yeah, talking to the girls. Well, he talked to one girl in particular, and this is where things began to go from bad to worse. We'll pick up our story of Sid Vicious with the introduction of Nancy Spungen next. Rock and roll is filled with stories of infamous couples. There's John and Yoko, there's Kurt and Courtney, and right up there in the top three is Sid and Nancy. Nancy Spungen was American from Philadelphia. Nice middle-class Jewish family. Dad was a businessman and mom ran a successful health food store. Nancy, though, was, um, hmm, troubled. It started the second she came out of the womb. Nancy was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck, which might have deprived her brain of oxygen for precious seconds. At age three, she was prescribed phenobarbital. This was to stop her from screaming. She was hyperactive, and she was violent, and she once threatened to kill the babysitter. By the time she was 11, she had been expelled from school and was being treated by a psychiatrist. She was diagnosed as bipolar and had a mood disorder. There were suicide attempts, and her parents sent her to a variety of institutions that specialized in emotionally disturbed children. And get this, at age 15, Nancy Spungen performed a do-it-yourself abortion. I could go into the coat hanger details, but I won't. When one doctor heard about this, he believed that Nancy was in fact schizophrenic. 
She left home at 17 and moved to New York, where she became a hardcore groupie, following the Ramones. She also followed the New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers. And apparently, she also slept with every single member of Aerosmith. To make money to supply her heroin habit, she stripped or turned tricks. So whatever romantic notions that you may have had about Nancy Spungen, forget about them. They're all fiction. When she followed Heartbreakers drummer Jerry Nolan to England to try and win him over, she stumbled onto this guy named Sid. Now, Sid and Nancy's relationship lasted 21 months, but in that time, they became one of the most infamous rock and roll couples ever. It's quite possible that it was Nancy who got Sid into heroin, the one drug he hadn't tried before he met her. Nancy was not popular with the rest of the Pistols, nor with the British press. They gave her the nickname Nauseating Nancy, and she was there for that final, horrible American tour. Instead of hitting all the big cities, manager Malcolm McLaren thought it would be really subversive if the Pistols' first tour of America was through the Deep South. The Deep Conservative South. Boy, what a disaster. Sid was uncontrollable for the entire 12 days the band was on the road. There was a run-in with the Georgia cops just hours after they landed in Atlanta for the first stop on the tour. Just a few hours later, Sid managed to get beat up by his own bodyguard. The first of many beatings at the hands of his security people over the next two weeks. He'd bait them and bait them and bait them and then, all right, dude, I've had enough. Bam! And that was it. But the drugs were the real problem. Before the group left England, Nancy helped Sid develop a major dependency on heroin. Now, at first, he was kept straight, but he was detoxing and he was miserable. So after that very first show, he disappeared. Sid didn't turn up until the whole band had left for Memphis. And when he did, he was completely strung out. By the time the tour got to Texas, Sid was over the edge. There was an especially ugly incident at a truck stop. Here's Malcolm McLaren. I'll never forget the day in, in America. I think it was um, somewhere near San Antonio on the last ill-fated tour they had that um, Sid at that time, of course, got involved in the world of drugs, uh, naturally inclined to develop a taste for groupies and, and one that ultimately, ultimately met a peril. But... Um, uh, he, uh, th at that time, was very out to lunch and would only uh, eat Knickerbocker glories and usually three at the, at the, in one go and they would be mounted on the table and um, that day in a little m motel type restaurant that we pulled into uh, he apparently... Um, I was sitting near a table where a mother and daughter and father and son were eating their steak and chips and uh, they didn't like the smell that was coming across the table. And we, of course, never sat with him anyway. We were quite used to the idea. But uh, he was wearing his typical uh, chain round his neck and uh, this dirty black T-shirt that he hadn't taken off for six months and it had this big swastika on it and his leather jacket and his feet were black but um, hidden by, by the boots that he wore and uh, um, noises began to uh, appear from the table of this family and saying rather rude things about our dear Sid and uh, Sid, not one to um, stand by, um, decided to get up from the table 
and did a thing, you might all reel in horror now, he went round to the back of the gentleman that was eating his steak and chips and pulled his sleeve back and threw his arm over and above the man's head and over the, the man's plate up fairly high and withdrew a penknife from his pocket and slashed his arm and all the blood blew out like ketchup over the man's steak. Well, you can imagine that place. This was full of very rednecky guys, long-distance truck drivers. I thought we were going to die. There were other incidents, like the time in San Antonio when Sid brained a member of the audience with his bass. Big two-hander to the head. And then there was the time he wouldn't do a sound check because he didn't have a guitar strap with his name on it. Or the time a groupie tried to have sex with him on stage. Plus, Sid kept carving himself up whenever a knife was handy. At one point, you could read where he scrawled, Gimme a fix, with a razor across his chest. This guy was a mess. He was so screwed up that it became part of the road crew's job to bathe him whenever he passed out. When he tried to stay away from the drugs, he substituted peppermint schnapps, but even two bottles a day couldn't cure his cravings for heroin. Now, I apologize for the iffy quality of this, but it's too cool not to play. It's a radio commercial for the January 10th, 1978 show at the Longhorn Ballroom in Dallas. They said no one could be more bizarre than Alice Cooper, or more destructive than Kiss. They have not seen the sex business. Tuesday night, Stone City Attractions presents live the sex business. Oh, Sid was in fine form that night in Dallas. At one point during the gig, three of the four strings on Sid's bass were broken. But he either didn't notice or didn't care. Or it didn't matter because a roadie was playing all his parts backstage anyway. By the time the Sex Pistols staggered into San Francisco, the group had been banned from American Airlines and the entire Holiday Inn chain, partly because Sid had rewritten the book on self-destruction. Oh, and there was an event in Tulsa with a groupie that was so vile... I can't even begin to talk about it here. But before that show in San Francisco, Sid was straight enough to do an interview with Johnny at a local radio station. Um, but it got ugly. You got it. Shut your blood clot, mommy, cut you to rash. Oh, shut up, Sidney. Most of our records are banned because, like, we're telling the truth. For a year, we've been banned, like, everywhere, and our records are banned because, like, we're saying things that, to the straight, like, cops and... You know, like, the growing-ups, that's unacceptable to them. They can't take anarchy. They want everything ordered so that life is nice and safe and, like, 
They're, they're closet cases. They ain't ever been out of their closet since the day they were born. I don't think, ever. I just do. I, I don't think. None of us think. We just do. Why bother about thinking about it? Let's no, talk I'm about sex. I like American girls. What are we talking about? Physically? Mentally? What are you talking about? Mentally, they're not there at all. <laughs> I'm talking about shoving it in. I thought you might be. From the last ever Sex Pistols show with Sid, Saturday, January 14th, 1978 in San Francisco, here's the closing song, complete with Johnny Rotten's famous final words. This is the sound of a band breaking up on stage. No fun, be alone, no fun, by myself, no fun, all alone, no fun. <laughs> Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. And that was it for the Sex Pistols. Sure, there were the reunions, but Sid wouldn't be around for any of them. The story of the final 12 months of Sid's life and the last nine months of Nancy's, coming next. Hours after the show in San Francisco on January 14, 1978, the Sex Pistols broke up. Things were just too violent, too self-destructive, too weird for the band to stay together. Guitarist Steve Jones and drummer Paul Cook ended up in South America, where they recorded with an exiled British criminal. Johnny Rotten eventually turned up in Jamaica to decompress, soak up some reggae, and to smoke some ganja. And Sid? Well, he disappeared until someone found him comatose in a closet somewhere in the Hyde-Ashbury district. Someone eventually got him on a plane with the idea of taking him back to London, but he managed to OD on the plane on the way back to make his connection to New York. Now, the goal was to get him on another plane as soon as possible after a few days of detoxing, but once he and Nancy were alone, the notion of cleaning up disappeared. Then Malcolm McLaren had this bright idea. The Sex Pistols could carry on with Sid as the new singer. So it was off to Paris in a cloud of junk to film a couple of sequences for a film that would end up being called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Sid doing his best with an old Eddie Cochran song called Come On Everybody. Now that Paris trip was awful. First, Malcolm and Sid had grown to hate each other, and Sid would only do his parts for the film if Malcolm signed a note that said, Malcolm McLaren is no longer my manager. The other problem was Nancy. She kept supplying Sid with smack. It was amazing that Malcolm got any work out of Sid because he was so unbelievably wasted all the time. After Paris, Sid and Nancy were evicted. They had been living in a flat that they were sharing with a bunch of people, and they were evicted by Sid's old friend, Ja Wobble. Even he had had enough, especially with Nancy, so he chased the two of them out of the apartment with an axe. With nowhere to go, they decided that it was time to move to New York, a place where Nancy said she knew some people. But before they left, Sid put together a band and played one show at the Electric Ballroom in London in late August of 1978. The group included Rat Scabies of the Damned on Drums, Glenn Matlock, the Sex Pistol bass player that Sid replaced, and Sid on vocals. Sid called his band the Vicious White Kids. This one's dedicated to my money, Nancy. They had just nine songs, so for the three sets, they just repeated them three times. No, no, really. Ooh, wow. 
Wow, Sid Vicious and the Vicious White Kids doing the old Stooges song, I Want to Be Your Dog, dedicated to Nancy, no less. With the money from that gig at the Electric Ballroom and a 10,000-pound loan from Malcolm McLaren, all in 10-pound notes, Sid and Nancy flew to New York City. And on August 23, 1978, they checked into the Chelsea Hotel on West 23rd Street in Manhattan under the name Mr. and Mrs. Ritchie. Now, the Chelsea Hotel is a place that hundreds of artists and bohemian types, from Dylan Thomas to Leonard Cohen to Janis Joplin, have called home over the years. And unofficially, the first three floors were reserved for junkies and assorted lowlifes. They put Sid and Nancy on the first floor. This would be the start of their new life. They'd clean up, Sid would become famous, they'd get married and live happily ever after. Now, Sid did seem pretty serious about reviving his music career. Within a week, he had a band together, consisting of two guys from the New York Dolls and Mick Jones of The Clash. And on September 7, 1978, they played the first of three shows at Max's Kansas City in New York. Again, sorry for the dodgy quality, but this is history. And there's just nothing about this history that's pretty. Sid Vicious at Max's Kansas City in New York in September of 1978. Believe it or not, that set was eventually released on album in England where it made it all the way to number 30 on the album charts. That showcase actually went quite well, but nothing came of it because of Nancy. As Sid's manager, she started throwing her weight around, demanding all sorts of outrageous things. The press was turned off, the record companies were scared away, and she got so bad that Sid couldn't find anyone to form a band with. The result? Well, both of them sank deeper into a stupor of marijuana, methadone, heroin, and delauded. There are some interviews with Sid and Nancy at the time, but they're so out of it no one makes any sense. Sid OD'd at least once that month and was sent to hospital. They also went to Philadelphia so Sid could meet the parents. That must have been interesting. After a few hours, it was suggested that the couple stay at the Holiday Inn instead of the usual guest room. By October 11, 1978, Sid and Nancy had moved into room 100 at the Chelsea Hotel. See, the mattress in their old room caught fire. Wonder how that happened. And they had to move. There was a party in the room, with a variety of lowlifes drifting in and out. Sid wasn't involved all that much. He had passed out on the bed after taking 22 and alls, a very powerful sedative. The morning of October 12, 1978, about 9 o'clock. No one really knows what happened, but when Sid woke up, the bed, the sheets, and the floor were covered with dried blood. Nancy was lying dead on the bathroom floor of the hotel room. She had been stabbed in the stomach and had bled to death. Doctors later said that a wound like that meant it would have taken up to three hours to die. The weapon was apparently a brand of knife called a 007. Sid and some punk friends had bought it a few weeks earlier. Now, Sid claimed to have no idea of what happened. He remembered nothing because, remember, he was passed out on the bed early. Was it one of the two drug dealers that supplied the party? Was there a robbery? A big chunk of money, some say $1,500 in gig money, others say $20,000 in royalties from Virgin Records, was missing from the room. Or was it Sid himself? Was it out of anger? Was it out of jealousy? Or was it a messed up suicide pact? For the record, that's what Nancy's mom believes. Sid's mom felt the same way. But then a 2004 investigative book called Too Fast to Live believes that it was a drug dealer named Rockets Red Glare. But we'll never know. 
October 13, 1978. Here's an item for the New York Post. Sid Vicious seized at Chelsea Hotel, punk rock star accused of slaying girlfriend. His face pale and scratched, the days looking vicious muttered curses and I'll smash your cameras as he was led from the hotel where the body of Nancy Laura Spungen, 20, clad in blood-soaked black lace brown panties, was found crumbled under the bathroom sink. Sid was charged with second-degree murder and sent to the detox unit at Rikers Island Prison. Bail was set at $50,000. October 14th, 1978, headline in the British press. Vicious in trance, Sex Pistol is near collapse after I didn't stab her claim. And here's something pretty tasteless. Back at Malcolm McLaren's clothing shop on King's Road, they started selling t-shirts that read, I'm alive, she's dead, I'm yours. October 17th, 1978, Malcolm McLaren posts Sid's bail and he's released. October 23rd, 1978, Sid attempts suicide by slashing himself with a broken light bulb. He messed that up, so he tried to jump out of a window at the Seville Hotel in New York. December 9th, 1978. Sid goes out for a night on the town and runs into the brother of singer Patti Smith. They get into a fight, and Sid slashes the guy's face with a beer bottle. He's arrested on assault felony charges and is sent back to Rikers Island, where he's forced to detox again. Well, almost detox. See, Mom was a regular visitor. She smuggled in dope in her boots. Sid took the drugs and stuck them, uh... Uh, well, you know where. And then he went back to his cell and got high. February 1st, 1979. After 55 days in jail, Sid is out on bail. And by this time, he is completely detoxed. And somehow, while in jail, he has managed to find himself another girlfriend. Her name was Michelle Robinson. To celebrate Sid's freedom, Sid, Mom, and some friends went to Michelle's apartment where they had a nice spaghetti dinner. There was another visitor that night, a dealer named Peter Kodak. Sid's mom called him over to deliver a little smack for her boy. You know, a getting out present. Sid got a little taste for dessert, but because he was so clean, he immediately OD'd. They managed to revive him and put him to bed. That was the fatal move. Instead of keeping him awake until the dope left his system, they let him fall asleep. February 2nd, 1979, Groundhog Day. Sid's mom comes in to check on her boy, who's lying in bed next to Michelle. He was stone cold dead. Apparently, the heroin he took the night before was 99% pure, and since he had detoxed, his body was super vulnerable. As he slept, his heart beat slower and slower each time he fell into a dream state. His lungs filled up with fluid, and he died. He was 21 years old. Here's Sid's friend Steve Lucky of the Canadian band The Vile Tones, one of the guys who was with Sid when he bought that big knife. Sid was, was bathed in banality, you know, and you could see it coming a mile away. It's you're no more surprised to hear of his death than you one is to hear the death of Gigi Allen or Johnny Thunders. It's like, gee, I didn't see that coming, you know, of course. But the boy really did give off the vibe that he really clearly was not for here. You know, he needed to go. So, Sid was dead before he got to go to trial for the murder of Nancy Spungen. The New York cops closed the case. But, like I said, there are those who have doubts over whether he actually did it. Here again is Steve Leckie of the Vile Tones. No, I don't think so. I think, like, uh, I think it's one of those things where, you know, when you're knotted out and you're, you know, on smack, that 
she could have as easily plunged it into herself and not even felt it, you know, if depending on how much, you know, heroin she's on. I mean, this, this is a drug used on uh, um, the soldiers when they've had their legs blown off. Probably didn't even feel it. To think of him actually, you know, plunging the girl he loved with a knife is just too Romeo and Juliet, having known him, to think that he really would have done that. No. No. And this is why I think the forward-thinking judges, and judges are always most liberal in societies, recognized that with, no, you know. I mean, killers just don't look like that. You know, they don't act like that. And I think that that was why you, you let this guy out on bail, and of course, you know, you let him, you know, so. The story of Sid Vicious is not a pretty one. So why is he remembered by so many people? Why did Hollywood make a movie about Sid and Nancy in 1986? Why are there books on the guy? Why does Sid's face still sell a million t-shirts a year? In short, why, in death, has Sid Vicious become bigger than life? I think there's two reasons. First of all, he was punk's answer to James Dean. Live fast, die young, die hard. The second reason is a little more complicated. The original punk movement had a built-in drive towards self-destruction. Sid Vicious came to symbolize that. And to some, the drive to self-destruct is a poetic and artistic one. But Rat Scabies of the Dan will tell you that Sid Vicious was important for another reason. Like any man that turns around and says, look, music's easy, you just put your fingers on the guitar neck and that's a chord. And you only need to move it up and down and then you've got a song. And somebody to come in with that, you know, musicians get so, you know, they masturbate so much about how well they can play. And for someone to be able to come in with that and then actually prove it works and prove it functions, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's not an that's somebody that's actually aware. Sid Vicious, May 10th, 1957 to February 2nd, 1979. The ultimate punk rock f up. Now, if you're wondering what happened to the remains of Sid and Nancy, I could tell you. Nancy's body was taken back to Philadelphia and buried. Sid was issued death certificate 156-79-102078 by the city of New York and was cremated on February 7th, 1979. His mom spread some of his ashes on Nancy's grave in Philadelphia and took the rest back to England. There's an apocryphal story about how she tripped at Heathrow Airport and some of Sid's ashes were spilled and sucked into the air conditioning ducts. Not sure if that's really true, but it's a story that's been making the rounds for 30 years. Ma lived semi-quietly in London for the next 20 years. She tried to form a band that did Pistols covers, but that never really worked out. Then, run down by money and health problems, she committed suicide on September 5th, 1996 by taking an overdose of pills while sitting in her favorite chair. She was 64. Rocket's Red Glare, the drug dealer and wannabe actor that some say was Nancy's actual murderer, died of liver failure and hepatitis C in 2001. By the way, if you ever see the 1985 movie Desperately Seeking Susan starring Madonna, he plays a cab driver. Meanwhile, there was a book called Too Fast to Live, published in 2004, that says that the entire investigation was bungled by the NYPD. We'll never know what happened. Then there's a film called Who Killed Nancy? It says maybe Nancy killed herself, or maybe it was a drug dealer named Michael. I told you this was a strange story. And obviously, Sid wasn't the only f***ed up character. Research help from Natalia Ribeiro, technical production by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's ongoing history of new music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So, who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Horn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done and, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. 
Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they what gravity what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking. Um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art. As far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration, so it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line, right? I've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these you know things? Uh, and and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh, uh and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.